More than 117 million people will be forced from their homes or stateless in 2023, according to the United Nations Refugee Agency. That's more people than live in the entire country of Turkey. Already vulnerable refugees, asylum seekers, and displaced persons often experience human rights violations. The data of the human rights of displaced persons and refugees is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Volker Schimmel, head of the Global Data Service, UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency. UNHCR protects people forced to flee their homes because of conflict and persecution. Volker, thank you so much for joining us here on Stats and Stories today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, to get us started, could you talk a little bit about sort of the, the work that UNHCR does? Sure. Um, maybe I start quickly where and how we started. Uh, UNHCR That'd be great. was um, uh, created in 1950, and it is really the UN's agency uh, who um, takes care, if you will, of the Geneva Convention on Refugees, which is a 1951 convention coming very much out of the experience of the uh, Second World War period and creating a, an international regime for refugee protection. Later on, we were also given uh, in the 1960s the mandate for stateless persons, which is related Mm -hmm. but different. And then, of course, in uh, decades that followed the Geneva Convention, also internally displaced persons became important. So individuals who are forced to flee but don't cross international borders. So over the years, we've gone through uh, various uh, phases and evolutions. And today we are a global organization were um, present in 137 countries and territories. We have just under 20,000 staff working for the organization, and uh, we are operational in over 500 locations. The vast majority of those are field locations, so you can think of them as capitals in either in or near conflict zones or uh, zones producing uh, a number significant numbers of forcibly displaced persons and very often our staff uh, is then not just in the capital but really in remote locations in uh, tiny villages whose and towns whose names few people have ever heard Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's where people tend to arrive and and uh, find protection and help. You know, it's, uh, as you were describing this, you, you were talking about first starting with refugees, then start, then moving to responsibilities with stateless people, and then ultimately internally displaced people. And I, I, I found that to be you know kind of a, something that maybe people don't think about the, that there are categories of having your lives disrupted. Can can you there there's probably formal definitions for some of this. Can can you help kind of differentiate? I I think I understand now internally displaced are people that are no longer able to stay in their particular in their home but are not leaving their country can you talk a little bit more about stateless versus versus refugees i'd be happy to and, and you're right it is off a, a source of, of confusion um and and uh, complexity but i think there's really basic ways of thinking about this so you already covered internally displaced uh, very very accurately um, I jump back to to refugees here we're talking about individuals who flee 
due to or based on a well-founded fear of persecution. This is the, the language that is um, taken directly from the convention. Uh, and reasons for persecution are listed in the convention itself. And then, um, of course, uh, they cross international borders. And by virtue of having that well-founded fear of persecution, uh, they are uh, refugees in, in, in the principal sense. Now, of course, there are then uh, processes that make a determination as to whether that status is a status that they should be accorded. This is where you get into this distinction between asylum seeker and refugees. So asylum seekers would be individuals who have a claim and then uh, that claim is being assessed, broadly speaking. But you can still think, broadly speaking, of that category as those who had to flee and cross an international border. And then you have the group of stateless persons. The, the, the best way of describing that is actually, and it's not the only way, but it's a, a helpful way, I find, is to think of uh, children uh, born into refugee life. Mm. So oh. if you uh, are a refugee and you have a baby, if there is no mechanism to give you a birth certificate or to give you any document that allows you to document that birth, then you will be in big trouble getting any significant documentation and documentation in the country where you are currently in exile, let alone in your home country if uh, and when you manage to to return. And and that's that's a big problem, a very underrated problem actually, but it's a big problem mm. in in the international protection uh, regime that we we support. As, as you're talking, I wonder, what are the challenges of tracking these populations? I, I imagine because refugees, I know, often aren't stopping in a single place. You know, they're, they're I know in the case of Syrian refugees, they were moving through Turkey and then up through southern Europe, often into sort of central and northern Europe. What are the challenges for your office in sort of tracking these individuals to ensure, again, that their human rights aren't being violated and that they're actually sort of, you know, getting the supports they need? That's a very good question, and um, it is something that is also a bit more recent a phenomenon than um, oh. the broader displacement challenge. I would say this is really something that we've seen, at least at significant uh, at a significant scale uh, over the last couple of decades, just uh, sort of in in lockstep with with global mobility and interconnectedness. So I'm saying that also because it's something where we had to and are still developing. A new methodologies and approaches in order to tackle this, because you have to understand as a as a UN entity, and that's true for any UN entity, we're very much defined by state borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to think across borders, and we do that by virtue of our work, because we have often, or we always have in refugee contexts, a country of origin, as we would call them, a refugee, quote unquote, sending country, and then a country of asylum or refugee receiving country. So we've always had that at least binome of countries. But now that has shifted over the last few years where you have not just one country of asylum, but you have onward movement. And so we have started uh, for, for a number of years now through different types of work. Some of this is to do with our registration and identification work where we actually get to uh, see people who come to us not just once but of course multiple times in various locations to be registered for protection and services and that allows us to have some visibility on that. We have developed uh, survey methodologies in order to capture trends uh, more than specific individual stories and, and pathways and we're um, really 
doubling down on that because it it just con- if you think of the Mediterranean situation, if you think of the Americas, uh, there are really very big we would call them route-based challenges that really oh. span uh, countries, sometimes continents, mm. and and making sense of these of these flows and of course also ultimately the protection needs along those routes is is a big challenge and I would argue one of the biggest um, areas of focus in our uh, data and data innovation. When you were talking about kind of one of the definitions of of how someone could be come online or become identified as stateless and birth in a refugee context, you know, living in a, a refugee camp and and being born there. I, I was just thinking about just the challenges of trying to, to document, you know, that the people that are present in a camp, the the nature of their their situation. So you ha- that with with particularly even with the, the births as you've just mentioned, but then I've, I've I was curious about just people in crisis, people that that may be concerned about uh, trust in providing information in this. So so how do you? Uh, I I'm asking uh, this huge question, <laughs> and because it's it's in my head, it's still a huge question. So so let me uh, let me start with with saying what kind of things do you measure? And then how do you deal with the challenge that maybe there's there's concern about what will this will my data be used against me? Okay, that's a that's a set of good questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all, all, all appreciated. Let me let me try and and, and tackle at least uh, two and, and add a preface. You mentioned refugee camps. I think it's very important to highlight um, immediately that the vast majority of refugees uh, do not live in camps. And in fact, thank you. it's not the setup that we would ever favor as a UNHCR either. Camps tend to limit freedom of movement, right to work, and a number of other very important, uh, in fact, enshrined in the convention and in the in international refugee law and a couple of important rights and opportunities. And by the way, not just opportunities for uh, refugees themselves, but also for the larger host community. So. It's really important to to quickly position that. Now, you mentioned the difficulty of identifying, so I'll start with that. And and of course, in in a camp situation, even if it's not the majority of our situations, it is a bit easier because you have a fairly well-defined geographic space, often a space where we are also much more operationally active, therefore present. So the ability to um, interact including on a, on a statistical level, uh, on a data level, with the community is, is much improved. And this is where we also then have uh, some of our best data points and uh, um, statistical work happening in these locations. It's a much broader challenge, and that's really worth unpacking a bit more, I think, in our, in our conversation, when we talk about dispersed populations, mm. because then you get into challenges of how many are there, and when you want to undertake a survey, what could possibly be the sampling frame? How do we go about uh, undertaking surveys that yield robust results and ultimately should and will inform our programming, i.e. what assistance do we deliver where or at least where first? So those are very specific uh, challenges that, that we have some answers to and some challenges as well. So that's on the, on the sort of starting position of where our work uh, happens and how it happens. Let me also take the second point, what do we measure, just quickly for a quick overall take. We do, from a, from a non-statistical perspective, and that's more, an, or at least strictly uh, speaking, st- non-statistical perspective, we do also do registration, which is more a national registry type work. So n- not quite a census as much as a, a population registry, 
a CRBS if uh, you know you, you move it into that sort of uh, realm a civil uh, registration or registry and vital statistics setup. And here it's really important to highlight that we do that because often in, in 30 plus countries, we actually issue documents uh, that refugees then hold and the government or especially law enforcement, i.e. the police recognizes. Oh. So it's very important to do that work because with those documents, individuals can show here, I'm here because of my status and my situation and I have a right to be here. And as a result, individuals are not picked up and thrown across the border. So this is this is really important first line of defense, if you will, work when it comes to our protection. Looking a bit more at, and, and this is an important set of data points, as you can imagine, including specific needs. We then go into specific protection work, social protection, social assistance type work. But if I pivot to assist, sorry, to statistics more broadly, the, the type of information that we're after are really things that we know very well from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, right? Broad indicators on well-being. Um, sometimes we have a specific angle that we do either enshrined in the indicators or we have created our own indicators on quality of protection, since that is our mandate. So we measure, measure those through statistical um, in, in many, if not most, communities with yeah, a broad range of, of challenges, as you can imagine. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Volker Schimmel, head of the Global Data Service, UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency. When we first started this conversation, you were talking about all the different locations that, that people are doing this research in the field for the UN, and among them being sort of conflict zones. And I wonder what particular challenges the people who are doing this work face in conflict zones, and sort of what you have learned from that work as, a, as an agency. That is a, a, a very good question that could fill a whole separate episode <laughs> of its answer. But I'll, I'll try to limit it to, to also our, our data work in terms of lessons. I mean, yeah. what it means uh, in terms of the, the natural limitation is the ability to move and to have access, sometimes for security reasons when there's ongoing fighting, and sometimes for authorities, as in national authorities, not allowing us to go into certain areas. Th those are the typical limitations that we face when mm -hmm. it comes to, to doing our work. Add to that the fact that, of course, in, in any country forcibly displaced of, of any variety, refugees, stateless or IDPs, carry certain political sensitivities and sometimes also very real security sensitivities, national security sensitivities. So it is never an, an easy topic to work in or to broach on a data slash statistical plane. So I'll give you a concrete example. Um, we have, especially early in a, in, a, in, a, in a conflict, a new concentration of forcibly displaced. Being able to, to go there can be um, just vetoed uh, and or, or we don't get permissions to move by the national government. We had that in the Caucasus, we had that in the Middle East, in Central Asia. It's very commonplace in Sub-Saharan Africa as well. It is in, in these sensitive moments, it's, it's always very, very important to really position the value and the, the neutrality of the work very, very cleverly with the right interlocutors. So this is definitely something that we've learned over the years of uh, how to do that and how to go about it. We don't always succeed. There are just situations, you can imagine the countries I'm talking about, where this will just not fly. But we've managed in, in, in many other places. 
I'll add an, another uh, challenge that is then more about the methodological uh, challenge. So when we don't have regular access uh, or continuous access, but we might be able to have remote access, you get into ways of supplementing data collection or at least initial data mm. collections, certainly in, in intermediary ways through phone-based techniques, for example, or other ways of interacting. So we are always very interested in ongoing research and, and practices in uh, alternatives to the, 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 the traditional in-person interviews. Uh, and uh, that's doubly relevant with um, a highly mobile population, not just in the sense of onward movement that we spoke about earlier, but also there's always a high degree or a meaningful degree of mobility, even domestically, because you know the challenges are often that you can't even get a proper rental contract or find shelter. And I'm talking about countries where there is even rental contract. So mm -hmm. it's a myriad of challenges and problems uh, that we face on a daily basis. I, I found myself thinking about the kind of services that, that might be associated with the data that you collect. I mean, even even providing some of the, if they don't have, a, have this, some of the, these displaced people, uh, cell phones or some other ways that they can be connected is one of the ways that you might both interact, think about services, but also think about data that's that that you might be able to help collect from them. I, I also found myself just just imagining this com incredibly complex system of interactions that you have to deal with, you the refugee, the asylum country, the host country, and how to position yourself to be able to to work in this this environment what are what are are there some lessons that you've learned about how to to kind of handle that i mean not you you and your organization have have learned to to deal with this to become effective in this role let me start with the, with the latter uh, and then we can come back to mobile phones and i also didn't really answer your question on on on, on privacy and concerns uh, of, of that sort what have we learned in that in that sort of 3D chess uh, that yes. to play with uh, international or, or state actors. Really, it is a matter of our ability to do successful liaison with the right interlocutors in country. You know, not it's not always the same ministry or authority. It depends very much on the domestic configuration. And we've really developed over the years a good sense of also through continuous presence, mind you. I mean, several of our offices are, are decades old. So to really have that uh, understanding of, of the political economy of any given country and, and also by extension, any given region is, 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 is vital. This is uh, key knowledge and key insights that we would be uh, suffering uh, if, if we ever lost it. Add to that that in order to move things forward, to in a way seize opportunities in order to drive uh, solutions and positive outcomes, it is often really about, if not always, about the opportune moment. Mm -hmm. And I think we have, and maybe that's more of an unconscious thing that we've learned over the, the, the years. Uh, I would certainly say that it's, it's something that we respond to very quickly and have a good reflex on. It's to seize moments, whether the moment is, and, and I don't want to sound morbid by saying this, but if you have a, a stalemate in a conflict, let's take a decade-long conflict, and then you have an external event, can be a natural disaster. Usually that causes total reconfiguration of perceptions. There's a lot of goodwill that comes regardless of the, the broader complex emergency, the broader political dimension of a conflict in the region. And, and that creates openings in, mm. in 
mm. diplomacy uh, thinking there's other examples like funeral diplomacy and things like that this doesn't apply to us but i'm i'm just trying to make a link to moments that appear due to external events that present an opportunity and we always try to then use what we have to leverage these as much as possible to drive different ways of thinking about refugee situations protracted refugee situations in particular and a less morbid version of that is if there is a big shift in development engagement with a country i'm thinking here specifically of countries of asylum so refugee receiving countries and there's an opportunity to say can we actually talk about inclusion of refugees in the job market in the labor market this is hugely important this is where we come back to to statistics and data because the intuitive uh, response uh, is is always oh no 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 but zero sum zero sum game uh, if we let refugees enter the job market then uh, x number of uh, citizens will have to leave the job market now our statistical work and this is where we've really built um, a lot of capacity and evidence over the last decade roughly speaking together also with key partners like the world bank key research and work and statistical work in this area has shown that often more often than not this is not true and that there is really significantly positive impact from refugee communities on the macroeconomic situation there's also always a, um, a big impact on the fiscal side i'm not pretending for a minute there are no costs but uh, what's underrated is the additional demand side to the economy that is brought by refugees the additional um, productivity element sometimes there is um, a high level of of skills that allows uh, um, a country to open up an entire new new industry so we did great work in in Kenya for example in Tokana uh, research in that area on on how that whole narrative can be can be looked at through a different prism a uh, great work was done in in Jordan for example which then took a milestone decision to allow refugees to enter certain enter certain parts of the labor market and there are many more examples so it's it's really important to seize opportunities and then be ready with uh, our data and our statistical work to uh, to push that forward what what's coming out in the near future that might help us understand the refugee crisis around the world better uh, speaking of which, the other um, sort of um, story that would also fit with something that we're about to publish in November is the, the, there is a thing called the Global Compact on Refugees. Yeah. And the Global Compact is really a, a way of um, addressing the, the most recent period, I would say, grosso modo, the last 10 years, um, uh, by saying, OK, we have really an exploding number of, of refugees and IDPs worldwide. And we can't take care of all of them in one or two countries in the world. So how do we make sense of this? And the, the overall mantra is burden sharing. And um, it's a very big uh, undertaking, uh, a very, very ambitious one. But we have a, a key data piece, in fact, a statistical piece, the Global uh, Compact Indicator Report that seeks to inform this. That's significant because it's also our journey as an organization has been one from just an emergency response organization with a lot of lawyers supporting the respect for international refugee law and data and statistics were somehow always there but not really front and center and over the last 10 years we've really invested heavily and transformed a lot of our work and the indicator report is actually a good example of how we're putting statistics front and center and not just 
counting numbers and putting out a, um, a, a an Excel table, you know, once every 12 months. So there, there's really um, uh, hidden under that a, 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 a big transformation of our organization when it comes to data and statistics. Well, and I, I like the fact that you're talking about not only do you, you do you quantify kind of what's impa the impact that's coming, but also using that as a foundation for saying the way that we have to address this is for burden sharing or some other kind of, there's got to be some international response that has some coordination. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the report itself, you see very quickly that it's about how much development aid or humanitarian aid is being provided, how much is being done at the level of refugee hosting countries to include refugees, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really that dimension of saying, okay, there's a couple of countries who help financially, others help by hosting refugees, and it's the collective total that makes sense. And underwriting that with, with robust data and evidence is, of course, key. What do you think is an undercovered story about about the populations you work with that, that you think we should all be paying more attention to? I think an undercovered story is really the, the upside and not just on a, a, a personal story level and a sort of human empathy level, but really the, the collective upside that refugee situations can also represent. Again, not always and everywhere, but in certain situations and locations, definitely. There are capabilities, skills, uh, levels, levels of resilience that, that I, I find inspiring that really can be leveraged into, into a very industrious, positive movement, really. And we're talking about small, medium enterprises. We're talking about really a positive um, economic impact on a, on a broader community, ultimately then also an, a, a positive dimension that helps peaceful coexistence um, and, and making sure that families are able to access social life on all levels while in exile, as long as they have to, have to be there in, in waiting for a solution by either going back or resettling to a third country, um, whatever the case may be. I, I find that a, 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 a great point about demand side changes as well and kind of the, the, the value that's added by these communities that might be added. That's, that's really, really critical. I, I, I'm curious, how did you get involved in this? What, what, was, the, what was your journey kind of to, to become involved in, in working with globe, the Global Data Service for a, an international human rights organization? I mean, I started out being interested in um, international politics and uh, aspects of international peace and conflict from uh, from a young age. I guess as as, as a child of the uh, fading Cold War, it, it has that sort of positive outlook on the world, and and I sort of carried that through schooling and university and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a major in, in statistics or any any specialist I did international relations uh, and that brought me into uh, the through the studies already into the sphere of forced displacement uh, early on and then through various um, engagements um, NGOs think tank and ultimately the UN and various UN uh, agencies I, I I always had that. So that was more sort of deliberate and, and linear. The data angle is partly and has always been an interest of mine uh, and something that I found useful in my work. And then it just happened to be, I happened to be growing in this quote unquote business 
as also the world of, of data and capabilities uh, grew, if not exploded. And just because I was able to um, use that from, from really my first, uh, as we call them, assignments with, with UNHCR and, and sort of grow it over time, it, it became a natural fit for me to then also take on some of the, the more global challenges. And this is how I ended up here. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Wilger, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, and thank you for the amazing work that, that you're involved with and your organization does. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on X at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thank you.